Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is Wednesday, November 2nd, 2016. This is episode 1891 of the Survival Podcast. As you can hear, my voice is doing better, but I'm still in recovery. The good news is this is an interview show, so that means I can uh, hold back from some of the heavy lifting on this one. Today we're going to talk to Christops Andresens who is uh, from Latvia. So there's going to be not the greatest recording quality you've ever heard, and you'll deal with a little bit of a, not a language barrier, but accent barrier, but it's really, really interesting stuff. We're going to talk about DIY during the Soviet Union and how people adapted and got by with very little during that period of time. That might be quite valuable to those of you thinking about your prepping and where you need to bore it up a little bit. Anyway, before that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey guys, if you're like me, you're always concerned about the reckless economic policies of our nation. One way to ensure your wealth is to keep about 5 to 10% of it in precious metals like silver and gold. And my first choice when I'm buying either is Jam Bullion because I get personalized service, free shipping, and better pricing than the big silver houses all in one place. Check out jambullion.com to learn more. Hey, would you like to do business with other members of the TSP community? If so, check out the TSP Business Directory, the place for our listeners to promote their businesses or find great products and services from other community members. Check there first when you need something, and remember to leave a review when you do business with a member. The directory is all about trust and value for value exchange. Check out tspbiz.com, that's tspbiz.com to learn more. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1891 because the episode is 1891. We have the rotary dial telephone and user interface errors. We have the mafia puts a hit on the chief of police. And we have the Tesla coil for the wireless telegraph. And in other news, first basketball game is played this year. The rules are adjusted after several black eyes, a separated shoulder, and a knockout punch. First Swiss Army is made in Germany. Production facilities in Switzerland are currently insufficient, and heavier than air flight is possible. Professor Langley demonstrates small-scale models, but real flight will be achieved by two high school dropouts, the Wright brothers in 1903. What I'm going to read for you today is the rotary dial telephoning user interface errors. The current telephone system consists of switchboards and human operators. You ring up the operator, also called central, by turning a crank and then asking to be connected to Bob Jones, or to a telephone number such as Klondike 55311. The operator then uses a plug-in connector to physically connect your phone to the proper circuit. Of course, mistakes can be made. A little bit of corruption can occur. A local undertaker suspects that the operator is diverting calls from his business to a competitor. Since this sort of thing would be difficult to prove, he decides to solve the problem by bringing power to the people. He develops a direct connect system where you select combinations of letters and numbers by using a dial. Your selection automatically routes your call without human intervention. It's called direct dialing. It seemed like a great idea, but the Bell Telephone won't adopt the system for another 28 years. <clears throat> My take by Alex Shrugged. My father was a telephone troubleshooter, and the number one trouble ticket he handled was that the phone was dialed the wrong number. He usually traced the problem to user error. Rotary phones require that one actually turn the dial with one's finger all the way to the stop and then release it. You must wait for the dial to return to its home position and its own speed. Don't push the dial and make it return faster. That goofs up the timing. When the push-button phones came out in 1960, it was hoped that rotary dial errors were behind us. No such luck. It turned out that people were every bit as sloppy pushing buttons as they were spinning a dial, but you couldn't tell them that. It was like telling them their kid was ugly or they forgot to wear pants. Today we don't have those worries. We select someone out of our address book and let the phone dial itself. Now all we have to worry about is a bit of butt dialing when your phone auto-dials as you sit down and when we get to listen to you rummaging through your desk drawers while we scream, hang up the phone. And then there's those embarrassing moments with spell checking or sending those late-night selfies to your mom. User interface errors, they began in 1891 and haven't stopped since. Yeah, definitely. And uh, <clears throat> I guess the thing I would add is when I was a kid growing up in Pennsylvania, The area we lived in was so rural, even though they had touchstone phones since the 1960s, it was the mid-80s before we got our first touchstone phone. And when we got it, it didn't work. It had, a, it had a selector on it. And when you push three, it went tick, 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 right? It made three ticks, th tick, tick, tick. 
And uh, that, that was just how it was. And it was like that all the way up, I think, until about 1988 when we finally got actual touch-tone service in, uh, in Jonestown, Pennsylvania. So this is one kind of takes me back. Anyway, guys, with that knocked out, let's go ahead and introduce our special guest today. Again, his name is Christophs Andresens. Um, he lives in Riga, Latvia, Lat Latvia, with a master's degree in Western philosophy from the University of Latvia. He's working on his PhD now. He's hosting a podcast about politics and the history of Eastern Europe, including but not limited to the current state of Russia, politics in the EU, history of the Soviet Union, region in general, mostly about the Soviet Union and how it was to live there. He uses stories from people who experienced things there in his show. He's here today to talk to us about Soviet DIY mastery, how to survive in a country where everything is scarce and the government keeps you under surveillance. With that, hey, Christops, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Oh, greetings. <laughs> hey, I'm... Uh, no, I don't, that's the wrong of a Russian accent because I sometimes put it on. But yeah, hello, guys. Uh, hello, listeners. And, yeah, I, I don't know, but uh, Survival Podcast seems like amazing because... Uh, Well, man, I'm glad to have you here with us today. Can you kind of tell people a little bit about your background? Um, kind of, you know, how did you... How did you decide this is like something you want to talk about? Like, wh wh where, where are you coming from with it? Okay. Um, well, from my background is that I'm a journalist. I'm a professional journalist. I work in a newspaper. I've been working there for a while. I'm also a historian with a, with a kind of old Indian stuff. And uh, yeah, a listener of mine who listens to my show, my show is all about the history of Soviet Union, basically, and Eastern Europe in general. And my, my region is just kind of, um, he, he just recommended me, and it seemed like a very cool idea. Because, you know, my wife's, uh, my wife's studying to be a home economics teacher, and, you know, I, uh, my, both of my brothers are in the National Guard. I used to be there too, but then, then my health issues kind of, um, Broke me down. It's kind of like, you know, National Guard, it's like, well, the militia units, just state sponsored militia essentially, you know, that's that thing. So we, you know, we over here used to do a lot of uh, survival stuff, and everyone basically pickles everything, and then we know how to hunt and, and do all these things in general. And, you know, in the Soviet Union, basically, I was on my show, that, you know, Soviets are the kings of do it yourself country, okay? So it just seemed very, very much. And we have crazy cats here. Uh, just seem very appropriate you know, to talk about this because uh, maybe you know Americans don't know about this this cold region. We have snow here outside already, and, and how we really lived through we lived through a bunch of stuff, and uh, we're here. You know, might be useful. You know. No, absolutely. Uh, and um, how old are you? I mean, how do you do you remember the the, the fall of the Soviet Union? I mean. I'm yeah. in my 40s, so I do from a different perspective, obviously, but are you old enough to remember kind of before and after? I don't really remember before because uh, I was born in 1989. I'm 27 right okay. now. But I do remember very early years, like the early 90s, just, just after everything crashed down. I operate on my show basically on, on the stories of the people around me because during my work, I have this habit of collecting information. You know, I just collect these stories of of that generation, and, you know, most of these people don't speak English, see, and, and then, you know, this is, my show contains the stuff that is not on normal history books, and it will, it might just get lost, so I'm just keep, keeping the legacy going on and informing people about, about everything. And besides, you know, my show started, my show started when I, when I listened to, to some, to like, to a political podcast, which got everything wrong about what they were doing. And I just thought, hey, I should talk about this. And then, and then at that time, there was actually no, there were like still like no native people from these parts talking about any of this. So managed to be the first one. And I don't know if we said this or not, but you're joining us today from Latvia, correct? Yeah, very good Latvia. So you, I, I've kind of looked into some of your stuff, and you talk a lot about how the Soviets had to work around, you know, things that, Preparedness-minded people think about like a complete deficit of food, clothing, and literally everything else in the stores. Can you talk about how how the Soviets worked around that and more? The, I guess the people than the government. Well, 
well, the government basically had their own special stores, like, you know, for the upper echelons over here, but, uh, well, well, where to begin? Uh, first off, interestingly about food, everyone, everyone grew every, everything in their own, like, home plots. You know, you have, you have these, these apartment buildings and right next to them, like, in your backyard, you, you just grow some potatoes or some tomatoes, everything. Everyone had a, had a small place in the countryside where, where they also had to grow their own stuff. And everyone just went out pickled, picking mushrooms. And you know, was the first thing, you, you had to have your relatives in the countryside and you had to grow whatever you possibly could. And then you, you trade, then you basically stole whatever useless, useless or more or less useful stuff from your factory that made some stuff and then you trade it down on the black market. You had to go through a lot of issues. And my dad, he, he used to play bass in, or, in the opera orchestra for 20 years and he was also in a punk rock band. But, for example, he couldn't just get any electric guitars. So he made his own from uh, copper from copper wires and from basically he cut it out from from an old school table. He had to make it make it himself. So basically everyone had to get around complete light and everything, but yeah, it was basically through knowing that people that mostly everyone here pickles everything. I mean most of the recipes for uh, pickled pine cones because they apparently can be cough medicine and uh, pickled pine cones if you pickle them while they're young and green and then you add a lot of sugar there then it's, it's quite it's quite healthy to do that there's, there's also a lack of that but yeah you know, uh, fishing is also extremely popular and hunting because hunting was like you know you had to have a reliable source of getting meat because Nobody, nobody actually tried to work in their kolkhoz or anything because if, unless you live in Moscow, it works like this. You work in your kolkhoz and you don't even get paid money. Essentially, you get parts of the produce, but you know that every, but you get basically nothing. Everything will be just sent to the army into Moscow. So people managed to grow stuff on their own at home. I, I, I kind of thought actually for a while that it's kind of you know, normal for people to make their own pickle pickled stuff, you know, I'm talking about tomatoes and everything because you have to save them up because you know, there, there are no tomatoes in winter in stores and, you know, and so you have to save them up. I thought it was pretty normal. I thought people like to pick, pick mushrooms as well. And then, I, then, I, then I talked to the talked to these Westerners and found, found out that you guys don't do that that much. I think it's a big... Um... It's a big part of that as well. Who are you talking to over here? Because it depends on, you know, you're talking to someone that's from a city, someone from the country, someone that grew up in, in urban environments or rural environments. And I think there's very much a, a very similar dynamic here. Just maybe, maybe it's more for tradition's sake here and less out of necessity. And maybe yeah. that's why there's less people that do it. Because the reason I laughed when you said pickled everything, and I'll admit, pine cones was a new one on me. My, grand, my grandparents are Ukrainian. And you talk about pickling. <laughs> if it didn't move, it got pickled. So I know what you're saying. Oh, so, so you're basically from our people. Yeah. 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 <laughs> nice. Well, in Ukraine, Ukraine had a very special, special tragedy going on for them because uh, that was essentially the breadbasket of, of the Soviet Union. But, you know, all their grain got taken away, even during the Khrushchev era. And they saw very little of it, and they basically formed a lot of a lot of exports out, out, out there. They had to feed all the massive army, and it's kind of crazy because the Soviet Union managed to have an army so big that uh, even even if you have all this Russia and Ukrainian land, the Soviets just couldn't feed, feed themselves. Eventually, they had to actually buy buy everything from from the West. They had to buy buy grain from the West even. And Stalin hated this idea, but Khrushchev started this on, on, the, on the great decline. But yeah, it got worse and worse throughout the years. Just before it collapsed, it was just terrible. Um, I, have, I have heard stories from people who just say, you know, we enter a store and, never, and what you see there is just, uh, I don't know, uh, some, some fish, canned fish, and kefir everywhere. Kefir is from the North Korea. But just kefir and, kefir and canned fish. In tiny packages, and there is literally no meat. And if you have, if you see meat in the store, it's kind of a, kind of a very rare occasion. And it's kind of you know crazy. Bananas were considered extremely rare, and, and you know if you you got like a bit of bananas or, or some other exotic fruit for you know, for Christmas, and then you and then you save it up and, and share it with your family. And to understand how crazy all of this was, you know my. 
my grandfather, he was a civil engineer, and he managed to, you know, actually kind of get into get into positions of of, of like power. He was one of the lead civil engineers of of our Latvian and Latvian SSR. So he managed to actually go uh, abroad on official visits. So he, as, as a part of the Soviet delegation, he was in Japan in the 70s. And when he came back, he had brought a single can, small can of Coca-Cola with him. Oh. And he shared it with all of his friends and family in shop glasses, and then he kept the, the, Coke, the Coke can on, on a shelf. And everyone who came had to kind of stare at it, because it was amazing. It was a status symbol, really, a can of Coke. And that kind of puts it in perspective for people today. They, they don't realize, like, how good they have it. Um, but before we move forward here, I want to kind of back up the one thing. I heard you use the word a couple times, and I'm sure there's people in the audience that would maybe like to know a little bit more about this. You kept saying hunting. But we think of the Soviet Union as being a place with really tough gun control. So did the yes. common person have the ability to have a firearm? Was it very restricted? I mean... Like, what kind of hunting would have been done for uh, subsistence? With shotguns. Okay. And we had a... Because you, you could get a firearm if it was for sport, uh, or if it were, if you were in one of these hunting collectives. You know, people kind of join up hunting collectives. It's like, I don't know. It's like a hunting club, essentially. You have to join a hunting club, and then you can buy a smoothbore rifle. Like a smoothbore or a shotgun. Shotgun, okay. Yeah, only shotguns, uh, only, uh, like, only double-barreled shotguns, no automatics, no pump-action, nothing like that. Uh, very strictly limited to that. And but then again, of course, a lot of people had their guns, which had, you know, saved up from, from uh, World War II, because over here we had the Kurland Pocket, the fortress there, which kind of was one of the last things to surrender. Uh, to, to the Bolsheviks, then they were fighting against them, and a lot of people had just stuff saved up there. But yeah, I mean, basically, um, of course, it was for it basically meant that you know you, you used to hunt to just get the meat, and then that's more certainly or less it's also a social function because you know you, you have to you get to know all the directors of the factories and everything. But yeah, people people did hunt, but. Of course, massive background checks, and you had to give reports to check, and you basically had to get your permit from the KGB to get a, get a shotgun. But, yeah. Uh, then again, uh, every, every gun crime was very, very, very strictly punished, and, uh, you know, the Soviet Union only published good news everywhere. It was news were just propaganda. They tried to cover up everything, except gun crimes. If there was a gun crime, that would be publicized, and, and if the criminals were kind of hiding somewhere, they would crime crack down on it terribly. If the gun control was extremely strict, you know, it kind of worked, I think, for a while. The people could, could hunt. A lot more like fishing, too, you know. Fishing is still... We have a joke there that, you know, you have these... Uh, I don't know how it's in English, but, you know, the, the, the fishing that you do in winter... Uh, when, you, when you sit on the ice, ice you, fishing. You yeah, that thing. There's a joke going on here that you know, if you see if you see these guys ice fishing, there, then uh, soon soon ice might appear on the rivers and, and, and lakes too. Because everyone, everyone does that. I, I don't know. I don't. I don't do ice fishing personally because that's a wee bit too dangerous for me. <laughs> I just I just fish in the, in the summer. But but yeah, people. Then to work really enjoy ice fishing for some reason. It's huge. We actually have like championships of that here. It's kind of a, a major sport. And the same as orienteering for some reason. I don't know why, but that is hyper popular here. People just whole families just love to run around forests with, with a map and a compass and it's it's a really big thing here. So it's kind of crazy. But yeah, we, we love those outdoor thingies because Latvia is fifty nine percent forest. Yeah, I think that's what people don't get their head around is Eastern Europe, Russia, all the way out to Siberia. How much, how much wilderness there is. People, I think, that haven't been there, they get their their mental imagery off of the TV set and pictures of uh, you know downtown Moscow and stuff like that. They don't understand that it's a it's a massive wilderness. Yeah, especially when you talk about Siberia. Oh boy, we had a really crazy story a few years ago because. Um, See, all of this going into the wilderness part, it's a big part of our culture. It's kind of, you know, what you do. It's sort of, people, people just love to do it, especially uh, when summer with the boat and everything. But 
what is this what is this guy who was from Moscow originally and Moscow is a huge metropolis because 13, 13 million people and these people from Moscow they um, it's kind of hard for them to have this outdoors experience so it, it went viral on the internet because this guy was sitting in survival forums and he decided to prove to his girlfriend that he can you know survive on his own because he was this basically one of these people who uh, watch bear grills and think it's the real deal and he had purchased every possible survival stuff but he had like no experience of doing this and you know this this got viral because it was documented because this this dude without any experience he just grabbed a knife and some very basic supply didn't even have a tent and then went to Jibiru took a train went to the middle of Siberia jumped out in the middle of the evening, just straight went up into into the, into the woods in the middle of Siberia, uh, next to a very small town. Problem is, he got lost. He was searched by the cops for three days, and he had his smartphone, so he managed to post in a forum all the time. Later, <laughs> it was published, and, and that's a sad story because he dies at the end. You know, he was about like ten kilometers away from the village in the end. Yeah, you know, you, you just don't go in the forest with a tactical knife, a plastic bag, uh, and a lighter. Not even a zipper, but I just read the letter and he thought, you know, he'd be cool if he has this cool knife and cool plastic bag and he decided to do big stream for his girlfriend. Being 19 at the time, he wanted to be a real man. And, you know, this is a fun thing. You don't go in the middle of the forest in Siberia in winter alone <laughs> with just your smartphone. If you have only read, read these things, it's, and that's one of the things which, which you know, well, my father told me that, you know, if you, if you want to go out in the wilderness and live there for a while, start small, you know. Don't just drive into fucking Siberia. You can take that out. It's, I mean, this is really kind of the craziest story out there. But yeah, it's part of our culture. Especially, like, about with the boats and everything. It's just what we do. I mean, I mean this, this place is kind of so crazy that in, in Riga, over here, we have two forests in the middle of the city. One is built around the racing track, and the other one is a bit smaller, and it's built around the cinema studio. But the thing is, they're like good, good forests. And the thing is that those forests have lately caused the problem, because our wild boar population has just uh, gone overdrive. And these wild boars, they also carry uh, the boar plague thing. And you, if you, if you uh, wait long enough, in, in summers, you can see wild boars during the night running around the old river next to the monument of freedom. And so that's not the main problem right now. Latvian hunters are figuring out how to shoot more wild boars that are really running through the city. That's our capital, mind you, that I'm talking about. I, no, I, I get it. I get it. So, it sounds a lot like Texas. I think we have like 11 million feral hogs in Texas, but we don't have them running through downtown Dallas just yet anyway. Um, yeah, but they're very small and kind of small through the forests and, you know, it is what it is. This, yeah, this is kind of, you, know, you, you get home and then you see that the ambulance car has basically crashed a wild boar. It's like, okay. <laughs> So um, you mentioned in your notes that I have here from you that the Soviet education system during the you know this, this whole time uh, actually was really active in promoting do-it-yourself skills. How were they yeah. doing that, and what was their motivation? Because you know the, the motivation was to prepare. Another, see, there's this children's organization called Pioneers. They were basically like your Boy Scouts, except you know there was mandatory. There's everything, you know. And <laughs> uh, but the, the thing is that you know Soviets didn't produce high quality toys. Soviets didn't produce a lot of stuff to go on. But Soviets had this communistic culture. So for example, I had a book which was named uh, for for men uh, for men uh, for, for men until the age of sixteen, kind of for uh, for young teens, and half of the book was just communist propaganda about Glorious World War II heroes and everything. Another part was, for example, you know, how to make your toy car from wood, how to fix a bicycle, what kind of instruments you need for all, all sorts of things. Because it was used to kind of teach you how to fix things at your home too. Because getting getting a plumber was impossible. Getting an electrician, it all took bribes and lots of vodka and everything. So you had to learn all this stuff to be, you know, a Soviet. Literally a normal Soviet person later. And a lot of these books were just, you know, written there so that, you know, people are complaining that they can't get anything fixed in their home. Well, then why not teach kids how to fix stuff and how to build things? Because, you know, Soviets needed such people. And also, pioneers were kind of 
we're kind of neatly trained because, you know, you, you, you might in your Boy Scout camp, except, you know, uh, besides anything going on there, you also learn how to disassemble and assemble a Kalashnikov, shoot a target, spot, a, spot enemy tanks in the distance, a paragraph for parachutes, we have these huge towers over there. You know, it was kind of... Um, pioneers were basically trained to shoot you, Americans did. <laughs> and we can be worried in case the evil capitalists invade us, and we must also we must liberate more friendly republics. And I mean, there was there was kind of a rationale there too, because at the time military service was compulsory for all males yes. as well. So it was kind of like you're you're pre military military anyway. Like, well, you're you're gonna go be a soldier whether you want to or not. I don't remember what the duration was. Was it two or four years? There was some mandatory duration that that all males had to serve. It, it was uh, two years. But it was shifted around, because if you served uh, in the polar circle, it was only a year, and it was uh, three years if you were in the Navy. It's kind of different, but it was completely compulsory. Yeah, and uh, people were just trained to, to do this. It was a militarization of the society, essentially, because in the Soviet Union, everything went to the army. That, that's how you got, like, the, the good stuff. The army was the most important thing with all the tank battalions and everything. Because, you know... I mean, the Soviet Union was the only country on the planet Earth where the border guards had artillery and, and the, the artillery and tanks were kind of aimed at their own people so that no one can escape the country. Because why would you want to leave the glorious worker's paradise ever? <laughs> oh, man. It's, um, like I said, I'm a bit older than you. So I served in the U.S. Army during uh, the build-up toward the, the, the fall of the Soviet Union. I grew up as a little kid that, you know, in school we had... We had drills where they would have, you know, alarms go off and we'd hide under our desk because it was nuclear war. And I guess the, the desk was going to protect you from, you know, a, a nuclear warhead. And just talking to you kind of brings back, like, I think this is so far away, this time frame for so many people, but it's really not that long ago. You know what I mean? Yeah. Most people are in their 40s or older have the same types of memories I do. You remember the aftermath, but I mean, most people are just a few years older remember all of this. Yeah, my, my, my grandmother, she was a doctor for many years, a uh, surgeon, and uh, everyone, every, in every university, no matter what you study, you have this civil defense class, together with scientific communism, by the way, which is an additional class, because you had to read, uh, you, you, you had to read uh, Marx, to, to, even if you wanted to be an engineer or something, but she was a doctor, she... Essentially, if you finished, if you finished university, you could be called up from the reserves, uh, to, to serve, you're automatically in the reserves, instantly. Uh, everyone in every university, they had these physical norms, it was called GDA, uh, ready for work and defense. Uh, they had to do everything, and you had to learn also the basics of first aid, everyone. Everyone had to learn how to put on gas masks real quick, had to learn where the local closest bunkers are, and again, same thing. You know, at, the age of, at the age of 70, my grandmother still said that she remembers remembers all the details of Kalashnikov and how to disassemble and assemble it because you couldn't finish your school if you had if you didn't know how to operate these things. Um, it's kind of weird like that, I think. And I, I, this is the militarization of really, I think, maybe uh, North, North Korea, something like that. I don't know, because it, it, it was kind of silly at one point because, you know, you, you study to become an actor, then you have to mandatory do all of these things. And then in the meantime, you have to, like, after your work or after your studies, everyone just go to the countryside and helps out because we have this tradition. Because if you, everyone has relatives living in the countryside outside Riga, and when the autumn comes and, you know, you have to harvest potatoes and everything, then it's still a tradition here that you call up all your relatives so that everyone helps you pick up pick up everything and then it's kind of split between the family members. I'm, I'm kind of sensing there's, like, a strategy, strategy here that... In a, in a large extended family, which that's what all families are in, in, in kind of the old country, um, you would strategically say, well, some people are going to stay back in the countryside to maintain a yes. land holding or whatever, and then some are going to go to the city, and that's like a strategic familial decision that we're going to position ourselves like this. But this was, this, was, this was how it operated, and it still kind of is, because a lot of people just... Like, even though every Latvian wants his small plot of land and not to build a huge house in the suburbs now, but to, to grow a potato while the winter comes. And but it was kind of sad because uh, they used these private plots of land which are limited. And you see, imagine this, your, your government regulated how much 
land you could work for your own food. Uh, if you're living in Kolkhoz, but the people living in Kolkhoz only got their passports in 1981. Uh, previously, they had to go to local Czech and even go to another, another region. They were essentially still serfs up until, like, up, up until Gorbachev said. But basically, whenever the government felt that people are just, you know, too not reliant enough and, and not working in the Kolkhoz enough, they used to just shift their things because. At one point, people uh, who lived in the countryside, they, they could use, well, for example, two hectares, I don't know how many acres that is, basically, a certain amount of acres. Yeah, basically, at one point, it was like, you, you, you can have all of this land around you, but you only have to work in Kolkhoz, and then after after that, you could came home for food, you have four acres to work and grow your land, grow your own stuff. And then, kind of, uh, after some, there were some revolts, and People were just trying to evade taxes more, uh, and you know, uh, Soviets kind of, after the Soviet control slipped and they weren't willing enough, they cut it to two acres. And they could just, you know, force people from Kolkhoz to come over to, like, land. You don't own any land. Just, just, just note, you are given the land by the state so you can grow something for yourself. And the state could just as easily take it away and just, you know, plow over everything that was there. And so you had to figure out things, how to be very efficient about growing stuff. You had to pickle and save up everything. You, you really, really couldn't couldn't waste anything. And this is one of the interesting reasons, which is a, a backdrop of this, because you know right now we watch American movies and they are like these. You know, often in high schools they have food fights and everything. And that was one of the more really shocking elements over here. <laughs> these parts, because you know, we, we were always raised to be very respectful of food. We don't let food go to waste. And you know, seeing someone wasting food intentionally is, is something that still causes a major cringe in me. It's just, you know, something you don't do because you, you grow up there. I mean, this all continued really well in, this, in, in the 90s. Like, early 90s were, were a terrible, terrible time to be. Now, could you go over maybe some of the skills people developed that, that were really valuable during the Soviet reign? And, and I even noted in your notes here that you mentioned that one of the most important ones was the ability to make moonshine. Yes. <laughs> oh, boy. Soviet people, uh, see, to say that Soviet people drank alcohol would be an understatement. A much more precise term would be that Soviet people and booze are just a single entity which is sometimes separated. <laughs> uh, the thing is, everyone, uh, but, uh, Mr. Gorbachev decided that it's bad to, because moonshine is used as a currency, because rubles have the value given to them by the government. And, uh, you know, you, your rubles were essentially useless. Your average engineer earned 200 rubles, a car cost 8,000 rubles. Rubles were, like, nearly useless because they, 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 they weren't for any real exchange rates or anything. You couldn't buy anything in the stores anyway. The stores were empty. What, what do you do with your money? You can either save it up or, or, or what? You can't do a lot of it. So, people use moonshine as a, as a currency, essentially. Because... Uh, for example, to get your, to get your, uh, if your electricity breaks down, you need something repaired, you need some plumbing done, and you don't know how to do it yourself, uh, and if you, if you're gonna call, like, we have these districts, like housing districts, essentially, if you go to housing districts, they have one plumber, who basically gets, not, who doesn't get paid anything, and he uh, puts you on a list and says, you know, so at one point he'll come, but he never will. He'll just go to people who blame him, or to his friends. So it's very important that you know someone who is a plumber. Uh, to get you, when you basically, you, you call the guy when something breaks down, and give him two bottles of your homemade moonshine, and then you know that you'll get your plumbing fixed. And so will everything. Literally everything. So people really make their moonshine, and uh, people got creative because uh, even some factories got creative. For example, uh, during the prohibition, our perfume factory, Zimbabwe or Amber, they started releasing these aftershaves. One of them is called uh, like Trinoy and the little pickle. Trinoy means the triple one, which is essentially a pure alcohol just with some uh, just a tiny amount of perfume added in and uh, food coloring. <laughs> so that, you know, and people drank that stuff because okay. Soviets were really depressed. It was like alcoholism was a major problem, but then again, what, what else could you do? There wasn't that much that, that much to do. People used booze as a illegal currency. And if you managed to go to uh, some trip and like, buy a, an expensive cognac, you wouldn't drink it yourself. I don't know. You would just uh, figure, uh, sit and figure out 
which guy has the car parts that you need? Because obtaining car parts, dreadful. Just major deficit, almost army, impossible to find. So people basically, <laughs> everyone over here still basically knows how to fix their own car. Because you had to. Everyone knows at least the very basics of electricity and plumbing. Because you have to. Everyone knows how to pickle everything. Because you have to again. And, and this was kind of, was treated as a normal part of everyday life. Well, unless you want to do some, some criminal activities, because see, uh, Soviet economy was utterly non-existent and basically based on slave labor, because uh, when people, you know, I've, I've heard some people discuss the economy spendings of, of, of Soviet military, you have to understand that, you know, ministries all were under the control of the party, and, you know, essentially party, one ministry decides to do some, some movements, you know, Khrushchev wants to move missiles to Cuba. He basically he he gives this task to the to the military. Military got military some extra civilian transport, so they go to military transportation and say, hey, we want to move these rockets to Cuba. Ministry of Transportation notably replies that, hey, uh, yeah, but you know that will cost us fuel and everything. We will um, we will kind of you know need to ask you some some money for this because we need to operate like that. So army goes to Khrushchev and asks him for money. Khrushchev gives them the money, then the army gives the money to the ministry, and the ministry gives the money, all, all the money back to Khrushchev, and, and writes in the report, hey, look, we made a profit this year. <laughs> so it's all complete utter fiction. And the had no point, and yeah, you know, and, but Minshai was, was just crazy, and the, the lengths that people went to. Uh, for example, my dad was in the orchestra, they regularly, at one point, the, 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 the conductor of the orchestra arrived to them and said, you know what, guys, I know what you're doing, but requesting from the government, and, but you know, at this point, during this year, like, uh, during the last year, you have requested eight tons of, of uh, eight tons of vodka or spirit to clean your instruments. I mean, I know, I know what's going on, guys, but this is a bit too much. And stuff like that. The people were stealing everything they could, and then they couldn't. They were making their own stuff. And this, of course, was highly illegal and often exploded. But hey, what could you do? <laughs> so it's often this homemade vodka was just much better than whatever you could buy, buy in stores, anyways. And of course, I mean, I mean usually uh, also people who the stores themselves, like the what, like the really Bowser factory, they take two lines. And one line they just did the. The shoddy vodka, because vodka also was made according to plan, and on the other one, during the off hours, they made the real vodka, which they went to black market for, for jeans. You know, you can either pay uh, 200 rubles, which is a whole month's salary for a pair of jeans, or you can trade it for two bottles of vodka. Huh? You know, we have an organization in our government called the BATF, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. And you know, many, many years ago as a young person, I would sit and I'd wonder, what the hell does alcohol have to do with cigarettes? But you could make that jump. And firearms, right? Those three just don't seem like they go together. But what they are, they're the, so they're the biggest currencies. They're the biggest black market currencies. No, <laughs> We have a, a technical disruption here. No, no, it's okay, it's okay. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, anyway, I don't know if you heard what I said there. Yeah, I did, because you know, they are black market currencies, essentially. But it's weird, they're, they're still are, I don't know. And the, the fact is that uh, it's highly recommended to know how to make our own stuff, so to speak. I don't know. A lot of people also kind of made, made beer and stuff, but you know, it's one of the most important things because people still you know, make their own things, which are, um, again, still completely illegal. It's kind of, kind of crazy like that. So, there was also a pretty big underground publishing network, right? For music, for books, like, things like that. Yes. Publishing networks, one of the most weirdest things going on. See, uh, there, were, there were three main things which were happening. Number one was Sunnistat. You had, because if you wanted to get a decent book with like dissenting stuff in it, you would, when I heard this in my own, I would help this in my arms. You basically would print a pocket edition of this at home, uh, and, and then you would kind of bleach. After each reading, you would just give it to only your most trusted friends, and then you would bleach kind of the fingerprints off of off of the book. Because I, I I basically held in my arms uh, Solzhenitsyn's uh, Hippolyte Gulag, 
which is the size of a, of a kind of a, a matchbox, and it's, the pages are basically almost transparent in how much, how much they were, were coding. Oh. But that was in the front part. There was also the magnetic stuff, which was the same for music on, on magnetic ta on, like, tapes. But the front part was Röntgenist duck. And this is where Soviet do it yourself crafty this comes in and pulls frame. It was called Bones also. Why? Because people would go dumpster diving in hospitals. And then they would pick up these Röntgen images thrown out. And then they would imprint veils on them. For example, you would try to get, you know, American music, like Louis Armstrong or blues or anything, you know, all, all the cool American music which is prohibited here. And you would imprint, imprint a song on it or, or two songs or something, and you could you know, just roll them up and they would be very mobile. And they had all these Rengen images on them, like skulls and ribcage and everything. And this, this was Rengen. So you're basically saying they were making records out of old X-ray films. Stolen from uh, hospitals, yes. <laughs> wow. Wow. H how do you do that? W I mean, what's the pr do you have any idea of the process to turn a, a piece of film into a record? I actually, not, I'm not, not as smart in chemistry, but, but you do that. Because, I don't know, I have, a, I, have, I have a friend. Okay. <laughs> he's, my dad's, he's my dad's friend, you know, he's my friend, he lives in a very deep country, so he's one of the weirdest people I know. But he's a chemist, and he makes his living making custom-made uh, amplifiers and custom-made these uh, sound, custom-made sound devices, all sorts of them. And he does it with vacuum tubes from the old, old television. So he's doing some kind of, it's a chemical instead of a mechanical etching of the... Of the material, so I get it. He does it that way. I don't know. Maybe someone had a press too. Yeah. But, but, but you know, we, we have these weird people who like to do stuff on their own. I don't know who, like, and also everyone, everyone also kind of made their own clothing too, I suppose. I don't know. My, my wife knows how to sew and, and how to knit. She's a knitting fanatic and, and all this stuff is, you know, still alive and well. And what I have to say thank you to history is because. It suddenly has become cool again to do all these things. So our our old traditions and everything they're they're very much alive and stuff. Yeah, I can't tell you the exact process on how to make a record from all of this, but yeah, people did. It, it surely it was the sound quality wasn't very good, obviously, and it was dangerous to carry this around. But hey, it was it was what it was because people really had to hide this stuff. I mean, of all the things. But what KGB considered illegal, it was it was insane. Um, one of the things that people were arrested for were even if you had a flag of uh, like old independent Latvia at your home, you could be easily arrested. That was a crime, and that was a crime even if you had that flag and even if you had lived in independent Latvia and you know we we got our the Soviet Union and even just own, owning that flag. It was, it was a crime. Furthermore, even if you had owned a flag during the old dependent Latvian era, that alone was a crime. Because they had this weird, weird system. So people really worked hard to make everything as compact and, and you know, as compact and, and as, as hideable, essentially, as, as humanly possible. And that was kind of the crazy part. It's 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 a lot like when you watch the shows of life in prison, like the adaptiveness. Like so, it was like living in prison without being like the whole country was a prison. <laughs> That's how it was called, essentially. You know, people had uh, people had a great kind of a, a slang name for this because prisoner because because of gulags, everyone had relatives who had been in essentially Siberia. At one point, at one point, about uh, about so what uh, like ten percent of the population was actually in gulags. You know, it was crazy, and there was a slang term by Shreya Zona, like the, the big zone. You know, Gulags are just the small, compact zone. Everything else is just a big prison. It's kind of... Of course, they knew themselves, they told everyone that this was the most, uh, most liberal, freest country ever on planet Earth. And that fellow Americans would bomb us to extinction. Or something. Because apparently you guys hated freedom, definitely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. It's, uh, and I, I sit and I look today at the course that our nation's on and going, did we learn nothing? But 
That's probably a discussion for another day. Anyway, um, what is maybe like the craziest or most ridiculous DIY things that you know of that people did to get by during the Soviet uh, the Soviet Union? Oh, well, besides everything is not custom made electric guitars. Uh, yeah, there, there were some. Um, basically, um, MacGyver, for example, was watched by my father's generation with notes taken in and people wrote with democracies there. But MacGyver is uh, a national hero of these parts, mind you. Okay. Uh, that, that's one thing. Uh, yourself, uh, well, you, you, you could try to pick up pine cones, too. Uh, fixing, fixing your cars with duct tape was kind of popular, too. And... Uh, <clears throat> Oh, bro, I have to fix it. This, this, this happened uh, beside, like, beyond the polar, polar circle, because, you know, people had to essentially, you know, booze, again, it all comes down to booze, because people had two interesting means of acquiring booze. One of them was, you know, you, you took a huge pipe in the polar circle and ordered insane amounts of ink there, because you couldn't just order from the gut from the state stores, you just couldn't order booze. So what they did was they powered they, they poured this ink in a, in a pipe and you know the, the whole the color the coloring part would just freeze on the pipe and and the, the pure spirit would just pour out, so, uh, out of it you know you, you could get pure pure spirits from ink that's what people did so drinking rocket fuel yeah at one point at one point the Swiss experimented with uh, spirit with like alcohol based rocket fuel it didn't work well because it was all massively stolen <laughs> But hold on, I want to go back and say, so you're saying they were basically ice distilling alcohol out of ink? Yeah, in the army. Wow. Well, that's the craziest part. See, uh, as serving the army was mandatory, my dad's brother served in the middle of Siberia in essentially a radar station experimental experimental plane testing ground. They had a lot of them, you know. And at one point, they run out of their vodka stores. And the problem is they have, like, big experimental planes and radar stations. So, and the closest closest little town in Siberia, they could get vodka, is like 300 kilometers away. And they, they have, haven't received any vodka in their monthly shipment this time, which is a major mistake, because Soviet Army had monthly vodka shipments. It just couldn't function or what. And they didn't want to wait another whole month without vodka. So the thing is, you couldn't just, you know, fly a plane to that village over there you know, it's crazy. You might get in huge trouble from the authorities. So what happened was that some soldiers, together with the, kind of the, the colonel running that base, they drove an experimental plane 300 kilometers to buy vodka. And then they drove the plane back. <laughs> also, another thing was that you know, you need a guy, and he he went to space, and then, and then he landed back, and he landed in, in these capsules. Just as these cap, this is this is full of documents. Just as soon as these capsules had landed, people thought he was an alien. They attacked him with pitchforks. He calmed them down, and then he was taken away by the KGB. But while you know the capsules are there, they had survival things in them. They had uh, inflatable boat, food, uh, all sorts of things. When the when the officials came back to like grab these capsules. Everything had been taken from them, leaving only like the, the very basic metal carcass. Even like the, the plating was removed because you know roof material is hard to come by. The deficit, so you know somewhere, somehow in a village in modern day Russia, there is still a building and it's photographed with roof with like space shuttle space capsule roof plates. We are, we are very practical people, you know, you can, you, if you can do metal for metal for this and put it on your roof, you will do that. So, um, can you tell folks how they can learn more about what you're doing? you got a website, right? Yeah, I have a website. I am the Eastern Word All I am, that's what I run my podcast from. I'm also on iTunes and everywhere. But yeah, that is, that is what I run my show. I hope it's pretty, I, I hope it's, uh, you know, well, we're getting quite, quite big lately. But yeah, you can find me there. Um, I, do, uh, I do three episodes a month, and that's, uh, that, that's where you can learn more about the glorious, glorious history of the Soviet nation. And also some quite depressing things. My latest series are uh, actually all on the Soviet gulags and prison system. In my Halloween episode was a major report on, on uh, all these terrible things and how people were exiled. So I began in all these gulag rooms. So it's not always fun but I tend to put a lot of black humor in it. So visit the Eastern Border.org 
or just, you know, find us on Facebook or Twitter everywhere. So, so before I let you go, I just have a question. Is, is someone that's living in a, in a nation now that was a former part of the Soviet Republic, with, with all the things that you see guys going on over there, the, the, the rattling around uh, you know, Ukraine, the, um, all of this stuff, like, how do you feel about that when you see that kind of stuff going on? Does it make you well, nervous? Does it... it? It does make me very nervous. I mean, uh, I've been blacklisted by my, because of my podcast from Russia. I have been, like, my visa has been cancelled, and I have a lot of reports from kind of more connected people. I've read some anonymous emails, a lot of them, or just say that, you know, I should watch out. I should never even try to get my visa back. And I've sort of, I'm being monitored myself, and I've received... Oh, well, at this point, my, my birth account is denied because of podcasts. People are like really crazy on, on, on that end of the border, and I'm afraid that, you know, look at Crimea, what happened there, it's, uh, it's just the same as the Soviets did. It's the same Facebook maneuver. Everything is happening here. We're very, very worried that, you know, Putin actually might decide to do something crazy. And, you know, we're, we're not sure if we are as safe as, as, as imagined. You know, we're hoping for the best, you know. We would have survived once, I mean. I'm sure we'll make, make sure everything happens again and we will, we will manage on and everything's going to be great. But, you know, we're thoughtful. We'll, we'll, we'll endure. But uh, it is a very concerning development with, with Russia and everything because you can never know. You, you can really never know because we are we're kind of on this danger zone. And the media is just crazy. You might not know this, but, you know, they have an MP which basically opening, like, which on national television basically calls for the nuking of Russia or nuking of the United States of America all the time. Who, and, who does that? What am, what am I missing? Who's calling? Zelensky. Okay. There is a, there is a, he's a leader of the faction, and he's a, he's an MP, uh, like a member of the parliament, the leader, leader of the major faction there in the parliament, who openly just states in national television that we should totally nuke America. And it's kind of the sentiment, and they are, they are kind of interesting people, so to speak. Now, their, their, their government is is very much full of propaganda materials everywhere, and they're just enforcing this very anti-Western, anti-American message, it, it, calling everyone fascist. And, yeah, listen, Americans are Nazis because you are Nazis, obviously. Everyone's a Nazi. Ukrainians are Nazis. We are all Nazis. You are, you are the biggest Nazis of them all because you, you want to destroy the greatness, which is Russia. And because I, I get this, I get this like Russian media coming here, we can, we can get it in Latvia. And uh, the latest news that is that you know after the sanctions, it's uh, obviously America's fault that uh, people in, in Russia are just you know poor because you did that because you wanted to ruin Russia. Mm. It's just you know it is it is very worrying. And I hope I hope this kind of passes down. I, I do too, because like I said, I lived, I lived through the end of the Cold War, and I think a lot of people today that are around that are 30 and, and under have no idea what that was like. And when I hear things like this, it, it makes me think back to, you know, being afraid that there'd be a nuclear war. That's something I think most people under 30 have grown up without ever having really, they might know about it or it's a possibility, but they don't grow up with actually being a fear that it could actually happen. And, uh,. I think we're better See, off as it not being fear. See, the biggest worry here is that in a conventional warfare, and I'm not talking about like military tactics here, but in a conventional warfare, the United States of America can totally beat Russia's ass completely, definitely. But the problem is Russia has experimented lately with tactical nukes, and they have changed the nuclear weapons policy, and their nuclear policy is the most winning thing ever especially since they're actually rebuilding the KGB. They are restoring it again. So um, it might be a bit crazy if, if anything. If anything goes wrong, it will be a nuclear war and there's no escaping on it. And that is the, the scariest part of it. Yeah, the, the question then is what type, do we have a all-out or do we have like, you know, tactical deployment, limited exchange? It's, uh, it's something I hope we never answer that question. I think we can agree with that one. Yeah, duck and cover. Yeah, duck and cover. Back under the, back under the, uh, the, the, the desk of school. Anyway, um, Christophs, I really appreciate you being with us today. I really appreciate your perspective. Again, folks, the uh, 
The website you can check out his uh, podcast on is called theeasternborder.lv. That's theeasternborder.lv. I'll make sure that's in the video notes. And again, thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Well, that was a great interview. I, I'm honestly going to have him back on when I'm in uh, top form. I, I'd like to go deeper into some of these subjects with him, but I, I just couldn't today. Uh, in addition to the voice problems, this is now at a point where I think I'm past um, just you know straining my voice from talking. I picked up a cold or some damn thing from one of you people over here. Probably Jake Robinson probably gave me a cold, and uh, so I'm congested and I'm just not thinking right, uh, or I would say it's not thinking right. I'm not as sharp as I usually am, so I would love to have Chris Stops back again and go deeper into this subject when I'm on my A game. And I would say right now I'm probably on like my C plus game. And guys, I apologize for that. I'm I'm doing the best I can here. Uh, one thing that did come back today though is I did bring back the Amazon item of the day. And uh, remember, you can support this show always by um, shopping for all your Amazon items on TSPAS. It's a really great, easy way to support our show. Just go to tspaz.com, click the link, go on through to Amazon, and you can shop there. The item I have for you today is pretty cool. A lot of you know I've been recommending the Streamlight Stylus Pro flashlight for like five years. Great little flashlight, slides in your front pocket like a pen. It can actually be used kind of as a cubaton, as a self-defense tool. Very bright, very affordable, built like a tank, and so affordable, you know, I usually buy two at a time, and I end up giving them away and having to buy more for myself. Well, somebody came to the workshop. They had the same one except a little slide-back collar on it, and it recharges by plugging into a USB cable. That one costs a little more. It's like $44, but I have that available for you guys to look at today for review on tspaz.com. Um, I wouldn't toss out my Stylus Pro to get this one, but when you're in the market for another small tactical light, if you're thinking about upgrading it, if you've given yours away, you might want to make a consideration of spending the extra money on this one. It is about twice as much. I have the math broken down in the uh, article for you, though, on how you know it kind of pays for itself by being rechargeable over time. But I guess the thing is, I'm sure people now would say, well, now do you recommend this one over the original? And I'd say no. It's your preference. If you want a inexpensive light that uses either batteries you recharge separately or alkaline batteries, the Stylus Pro is the way to go. If you want a rechargeable light, you want to pay a little bit more, the rechargeable version of the Streamlight Stylus Pro is the way to go. And either one of them are great. By the way, this one, let's say that light, uh, that battery does crap out on you. You're not somewhere where you can charge it up, but you have batteries. It'll still take AAAs. And I think that's one of the reasons I'm sold on it, because it's not like a proprietary thing. So check it out at tspaz.com. Remember, if you like the work I do and the show that I put out all the time, just do your Amazon shopping at tspaz. It's a great way to help us. The other way to help us is become a member of the Member Support Brigade. Just go to survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more about that. Now, with all that done, um, it's time for our song of the day. Uh, talking to uh, Christophs and, and thinking back to the way things were in the 70s and the 80s with the culture of fear around uh, a world war. I have to say, as I look at it today, I'm not that concerned about World War III happening. I'm really not. I, I think that the people that run the Soviet Union, the people that run the United States are both, well, they're psychopaths, but they're also psychopaths that have their best interests at heart. And there is no benefit to the people in power that the United States and Soviet Union start chunking nukes at each other. But there is benefit to the point that the people of both countries return to a place where they fear it and where we go back to that culture of fear. I mean, I don't know how much longer they can ride the ISIS pony and the, the Muslim extremist pony, but this country, all great powers, have a history of convincing people there's an enemy at the gates. There's We've always been war at, war, at war with Eastern Asia, right? Um, and there's a need for an enemy to unify the people behind the tyranny of the state. And it may be very well the case that we're going to move back into that. And all I can think of when I'm thinking of that is how shitty that was and how terrible that was and how useless that was, how many people were afraid, how many people fear-mongered, and how stupid it is to have two of the strongest nations in the world, you know, at the brink of destroying themselves and each other and the people around them for the for the stance of of controlling others, which is what it was about more than anything else. And if it comes back, that's what it'll be about. And I remembered what it was like 
in the late to mid-80s and late 80s as we had things like the Moscow Music Peace Festival and normal normalization of the relationships between Gorbachev and Reagan. And that was about the time, you know, then eventually we headed toward, you know, um, the, the fall of the Soviet Union as a total, the wall coming down in Berlin, etc. And if there's a song that typifies all of that, it's the one I have for you today. It's called Winds of Change. And uh, after hearing that last little exchange with Kristaps, it's the only song I can think of to play right now. We can We can go back more to this mentality or we can go back to what was before it. What was before it sucked. And the only way that that our nation can use fear to control people is for us to be afraid. What I really liked about his attitude, Christoph's attitude was what we've been through before. If we have to, we'll do it again, man. It's, it's a lot more real to people that live there than it is to people that live here too, folks. Let me tell you with that. It's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the survival podcast, help you figure out how to live that better life. If times get tough or even if they don't, Could be so close, like brown.